many of you gotten into the World Cup? Anybody gotten into the World Cup? Man, I, I, I'm telling you, I love, I love it. I mean, I'm in on the soccer thing, too. I, I love the World Cup. I mean, I'm bummed that America didn't make it, all right? Obviously, I'm bummed that America didn't make it. But I've been pulling for my teams from the very beginning. And then, well, one, obviously, Belgium. When America didn't make it, Belgium became my team because for many obvious reasons, we got a campus in Belgium. I go there a lot. I love the country. I love the people. Okay, so that's one of the reasons. England has been one of my teams just because. And then through the tournament, Uruguay become one of my teams. Why? Well, Belgium and Uruguay, obviously Belgium for that reason, but also because of their population. Belgium has 11 million people. Uruguay has 3 million people in the country. Now, we have 400 million people, and we can't find 11 good soccer players to play in the World Cup. Okay. <laughs> 400 million, but you've got a country like Uruguay with 3 million people uh, and, and Belgium with 11 million. I mean, those are against the odds, right? Well, that's what we're going to see today. We're going to look at a story today of Gideon as we continue looking at the judges, grit, guts, and glory, right? And that's not grits for all you southern people. It's grit, guts, and glory because the judges are full of people with grit, uh, have a lot of guts for God's glory. And so uh, we're going to look at Gideon for the second time today, part two of Gideon. And what we're going to see in Gideon is we're going to see Gideon take 300 warriors against an army so numerous they couldn't be counted against all odds, all right? So God calls Gideon. Gideon's scared to death, but God gives him courage. He musters. He puts a call out to war. 32,000 men show up. 32,000 is like, okay, that's a fair number. But really, when he put it out to the whole nation, it's not a lot. But 32,000 rally to show up to fight. They, uh, the Midianites are camped in the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley is Megiddo. This is where Armageddon is going to take place. A lot of significant things happen in this valley. Uh, the Israelites, Gideon and his 300 or 32,000, I'm sorry, that's going to get whittled down. His 32,000 are camped upon the, the slope, the, 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 and they're looking down over the Midianites. The Midianites are just absolutely, as I said, it says that their camels are like sands on the seashore. They're just too numerous to be, count, numerous to be counted. And so Gideon, man, is shaking in his Birkenstocks, all right? He is already scared, but God is getting ready to turn the heat up just a little bit more on him. And so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus, not Exodus, <laughs> that was a, like a year or two ago. Uh, Judges <clears throat> chapter 7, hopefully I'm not that far behind as we preach. Judges chapter 7, let's look at verses 2 and 3. Let's start out. We're going to go through this chapter, all right? It says this, the Lord said to Gideon, remember Gideon's got 32,000, Midianites are uh, too, too numerous to count. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. That's a strange word, right? Isn't it a, a strange word? Lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. The 22,000, then 22,000 of the people returned and 100,000 remained. Now what you have here is, I mean, Gideon, listen, uh, Gideon didn't think he had enough. I've got 32,000, I'm, I'm, I'm on Mount Gilead, I'm looking over the Jezreel Valley army, I can't even count. I don't have enough. God says you got too many, right? But Gideon's like, what? I mean, more is better, God. More, no general thinks less is better. More is better. We in America, we tend to think that more is always better, right? I mean, think about it. More money, more money's 
uh, we always, more money's better, more vacation is better. I obviously think more sermon is better, right? I mean, more peanut butter pie is always better, right? I mean, we think more is better, and sometimes more is better. Obviously, I want more Bible in you. I want more obedience. But sometimes more is not better, right? I mean, did you realize we think more money's better, but get this, 70% of people who win the lottery end up broken miserable. Did you know that? They think more money is the answer, but more money is not the answer. It's the opposite. More peanut butter pie is not always better because more peanut butter pie makes more pat, right? And that's not necessarily a good thing. And so more is not always better. Here's what happens. Sometimes more takes our focus off of God. I heard someone say that Christians typically pass the test of adversity. In other words, trouble comes your way, uh, trials comes your way, and, you know, I mean, we pray, we question, we, we cry out to the Lord. Uh, Christians typically pass the test of adversity. But most likely, more than likely, or more times than not, they do not pass the test of prosperity. When, thing, when they have more, when they have more money, all of a sudden, man, I, I get to take my, my focus. It's easy to shift my focus from God. When I have more things, when I have more of this or more of that, it's easy to shift our focus from God. That's what's happening here. God says, Gideon, you got too many men. If you win this battle with 32,000, although you're outnumbered, Israel can get the big head and begin to think, wow, I mean, we're so much better. Look at what we did, right? And so God gave him a test to whittle them down. And he said, listen, here, Gideon, what I want you to do. I want you to tell, gather all the men together and say, hey, if you've got fe feathers in your tail, you can get onto the house, right? If you're a chicken, go to the house. And I believe that in Scripture, I believe God, you know, the coward. Here's the thing about fear. Fear will spread through camp like the plague. It's contagious and it will spread. You put a few fearful people and, man, it will begin to affect the whole thing. And so God said, if you're afraid, if you're a coward, you can get onto the house. Now, Gideon, if we remember Gideon from chapter 6, Gideon would have been the first to hit the road because he was afraid. God, I'm the least in my family. My family's the least in my tribe. My tribe's the least in Israel. I can't do this. He was afraid. But here's what happened. God gave him a word. God said, Gideon, go. God promised his presence. I am with you. God's word and God's presence is transformative. God's word and God's presence will transform you, okay? And so Gideon, knowing how he was one chapter earlier, thought, I don't know if I want to say this because I don't know if there's going to be any men left. But Gideon obeys the Lord and he says, if you're scared, man, if you're chicken, you can go on home to mama, right? 22,000 men kicked rocks. So he's now had 32,000, two-thirds plus of his men have walked away. He's got 10,000. Listen, that is, sounds so eerily similar to churches all over the world, specifically in, in America today, is that here's what's happening. So many people, so many people are too afraid to live in obedience to the commands of God. I mean, so many people, uh, you know, there's so much hostility toward Christianity today. Christian values in our country are being attacked like no other time in the history of America, right? I mean, you've got abuse that is rampant in all forms, whether it's sexual abuse, uh, physical abuse, emotional uh, abuse, uh, abuse, promiscuity, divorce. Every 26 seconds in America, a child is aborted. Okay, we're obviously in a moral crisis, and here's what we need. We need Christian men and women running to the front lines of the battlefield, but what we have is all over America is you have a lot of Christians that are like Gideon's 22,000. They're tucking tail and running away from the battle. I mean, not, how do you, else do you explain? 90 plus percent of Christians never share their faith. 
90-some percent of Christians never tell anyone about Christ. Most men never lead their family by reading, praying, singing. Most don't. How, how do we, I mean, how uh, can, can we explain not sharing our faith, not, not, not reading our Bible? Uh, I mean, how do we explain that, you know, most Christians are undercover? If I went to your work, if I went to a lot of Christians' work and I said, hey, I'm so-and-so's pastor, that, would they be shocked? I mean, somebody, I didn't even know he went to church. I didn't even know she was a Christian. If I went to your school, you know, so many Christians are undercover. How much further do we have to sink into the moral abyss before Christians stand strong? and run to the battle line. That's what we see here is God says, tell them to go home and two-thirds left because they were afraid. Fear keeps so many people from experiencing the victories of God. And that's what happened. So there were so many cowards that day. Uh, there were so many cowards. And then Gideon said, if you want to leave, leave 22,000 left. And he's thinking, now I've got 10,000 against an army so numerous I can't count them. But God's not through. He's going to turn up the heat a little bit more. Let's look at verses Four through seven. In, in verses four through seven, it says, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Boy, that's confusing, confounding, isn't it? There are still too many. <clears throat> Take them down to the water. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And, uh, and anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And, and anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So here's what happened. God has just whittled them down from 32,000 to 10,000. I'm, I'm sorry, to, yeah, uh, he's had 22,000 leave. They got 10,000. And Gideon's like, man, this just doesn't make sense. But now God says, Gideon, you still got too many. And Gideon's like, are, are you kidding me? Listen, folks, here's what I want you to understand. When God calls you to do something, it's very rarely ever going to make sense. Okay? It's very rarely going to make sense. Most of the time, if God's hand is in it and God's call is in it, it's going to absolutely scare you to death because you're going to look at it and you're going to say, there's no way I can do this. Okay? There's no way. And now God says, Gideon, you still got too many. And so take them down to the water and I'll separate them for you there. He says, those who lap like a dog separate from those who put their hand in the water and bring it to their mouth. Okay? Now, uh, what is this all about? What is that test all about? Well, a lot of commentators say, well, that's really nothing. It's just how God separated them for Gideon. And I mean, I don't agree with some of those commentators because I don't believe, for instance, God does anything arbitrarily. I believe if God was going to do that, he'd have just said, get these people, call out these tribes, whatever, send them home. Uh, I, I believe God here, he's already separated the cowards because the cowards, those who, who want to follow, but they're cowards, will never experience the victories of God. But now here I believe God is separating the careless from the community. Because here's what happened. Those who, who would kneel down, if, if you think about it, those who kneel down, when they get to drink down to the stream, you don't have a cup with you, right? And those who are going to put their face in the water, man, they, what have they done? They have just taken their eyes completely off of the enemy and all of their surroundings. They have just absolutely made the bodily desire and a bodily urge take precedence over the mission, 
because they've put their face in the water. They don't know where the enemy is. An enemy can come up, sneak up behind them, chop their head off, and they wouldn't even know it. They're careless. But then those who got down on a knee and put their hand in the water and they brought it up to their mouth, man, they were aware. They never lost sight. You see, they were thirsty, which is a real instinct. They, they, they satisfied their instinct without taking their eye off of the mission. Here's what you need to know. God will bench those who are so careless with their life that put, God uses people who regards the mission as more important than their bodily instincts and their bodily desires, folks. That, that's what we're beginning to see uh, from, uh, from Gideon and his story. And, and so, so 9,700 people out of 10,000 put their face in the water and lapped like a dog, carelessly, foolishly disregarding the mission to satisfy a bodily urge and instinct. 9,700. 300 was all that was left. God said, with these 300. This is the original 300. Perhaps you've seen the movie 300. Well, this was the original 300, but these weren't Spartan warriors. They were farmers, okay? I mean, they were farmers, the original 300. Here's what you need to know. God doesn't need great people to do great things. God doesn't need great people to do great things. God doesn't even need a lot of people to do great things. God needs a certain kind of people to do great things, and that's the committed people. I mean, think about Moses. Think about Israel. You've got Israel who is in Egypt enslaved. And you've got Moses who is the last person anyone would think would be a person to go in and lead his people out. I mean, he's a murderer. He's a fugitive. He can't talk plain. He's the one God said, go. I am with you. Go, I am with you. In my name, go, I am with you. He takes his brother Aaron. They don't have a million-man army. He don't muster 32. He doesn't have 300. He and Aaron, they go, and look at what happened. I mean, think about David, this young shepherd boy that God uh, calls to do something with Goliath. You've got uh, the Israelites on one side of the valley of Ella. You've got the Philistines on the other side of the valley of Ella. You've got the giant Goliath in the middle. And he steps out and says, hey, man, anybody want to take me on? We'll just, we'll just represent our countries and we'll fight. And whoever wins, wins the battle, right? I mean, this tall, massive giant. And there's no one in Israel committed enough. They're cowards. They're cowards. They're carelessly, foolishly uh, living lives that are not in obedience to God. They're cowards and careless. David, this shepherd boy, comes up. A shepherd boy, not the one you're going to pick. Completely out of, I mean, this is just out of any human logic. I'll do it. Why? Because I've got God. I've got God's word. I've got the presence of God. My God will do this. He steps up, takes the head off the giant. God doesn't need a lot of people, folks. God doesn't need great people. God doesn't need a lot of people. Matter of fact, when great people do something, God, they, they have a tendency to take the credit and get the glory. God doesn't need great people to do great things. He doesn't need a lot of people. He needs a certain kind of people. He needs committed people. He needs committed people. And so, so you know, here's what we see, man. We see so many, and I, I, I just think that God would rather use 300 committed people than 32,000 coward, cowardly and careless people. And there's so many people who never experienced the victories of God because they're cowards, because they're afraid. Man, if I share my faith, if I go public, if I take a stand, I might lose my job. I might lose a friend. I might be rejected. My social status may go down. My bank account may go down. You know, I want my bank account to go up. I want people to like me. I'm afraid of what people will think. I'm afraid to go public, really. I'm afraid to take a stand. 
and they never experience God doing anything significantly through their life. So many are cowards, but so many bench themselves because they're living careless lifestyles. Did you know that? So many are, 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 are just absolutely benching themselves because they're living careless lifestyles. I mean, listen, folks, if you're, if you're getting drunk, that, that you're taking the wind out of any sail of anything you say. If you're slandering people, you're taking the wind. If you're gossiping, if you're slandering, if your language is so crude that, I mean, and, people, and, and you, you'd be crude here. I mean, and then when people hear Jesus come out of your mouth, they're thinking it's going to be in the context of a curse word or in vain. It just takes the wind out of all of, of, of your sails, right? And so pornography, when the, the addiction to pornography and cheating, and man, when you're a phony, all these things, what they do is when you, they, they cause you to take your eye off of the mission and put yourself on the bench because we're living careless lives. And that's what we see here, right? We see so many people who are living careless lives we see the huge majority are cowards, and then we have another huge section that are carelessly living their life. And now you see 300 committed. God doesn't need many. He just needs the committed. Will you be committed? Will you be committed? Now, Gideon had been promised by God victory. God had shown him three signs. If you remember when he consumed the meat, the meat on the rock, when Gideon said, hey, Jesus, with the angel of the Lord, if you'll just stay here and let me go, he brings back, God consumed the meat on the rock, the fleece, uh, you know, and we, we really didn't talk about the fleece, but Gideon said, I'm going to put out this fleece, and if it's wet, and the next day I'm going to put out the fleece, and if it's dry and the ground's wet, and God confirmed now, uh, Gideon has been confirmed, God's told him he's going to win, but he's still more, ner- I mean, think about it, now I've got 300 going against an army that is innumerable, he is still more nervous than a potato chip on Super Bowl Sunday, guys. I mean, listen, he's scared. And so God, God says, let me, I'm gonna gonna give you some encouragement, right? And so Gideon's scared, and here's what I want you to know. All leaders are scared. Did you know that? All leaders are scared. All leaders are nervous. I mean, man, before we leave, before I come out, you know, you're backstage, I'm like, God, you know, unless you show up, this is doomed, right? I mean, publicly, most of the time people who lead for the kingdom seem strong, but privately, let me tell you what they are. They're on their knees and they're saying, God, if you don't show up, this is doomed. And that's where you want to be. That's where Gideon was. God, I'm scared. And he knew it because courage is not the absence of fear. Remember, courage is acting in spite of fear, right? And so Gideon was scared and God said, Gideon, I'm going I'm to give you one more encouragement here. I, I want to give you some encouragement. So let's look at at verses 10 and 11 and then 13 and 14. In verse 10, it says, God said, but if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And, and, and he says, and uh, uh, you shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And then verse 13, I'm sorry, in 14. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given us into his hand Midian and all the camp. So here's what happens. God says, Gideon, if you are nervous, and I know you are, take your servant. So we'll have two, you know, to, to confirm that this happened. Take your servant, sneak down to their camp. I believe it was a really dark night. 
right? There's some nights when the full moon is shining and you can look out your window and, man, you can see a long way in the night. I mean, you don't even need a flashlight outside. There's other nights where you need a floodlight because, man, it is like pitch black dark. I believe this was one of those nights for a couple of reasons, okay? And you'll, you'll, hopefully you'll understand why I think that as it falls out. This is one. Gideon sneaks down with Purah, his servant. He sneaks down to the Midianite camp. They're, remember, they're down in the valley, in the Jezreel Valley. He's up on Mount Gilead. He sneaks down to where he's within earshot. I mean, man, I believe he's almost breathing on uh, some of the Midianites and, and as they're sitting around the campfire before they go to bed. Uh, and and he, is, he is down and he's listening. And one of the guys said, hey, I had a dream the other night. And the other guy said, well, tell me about your dream. And he said, man, I had a dream and a dude knocked me out of my Eno with a biscuit, man. And, and, and so actually it's more significant than that. He says, there was a barley loaf that came tumbling down the hill. Now where's, where's uh, Gideon and the uh, Israelites? They're up on Mount Gilead. Where are they? In the Jezreel Valley. He says, there was a barley loaf, dried barley loaf that came tumbling down the hill, hit a tent, just wiped the tent out. And the other guy said, oh, wow. He interpreted the dream. He said, you know what that is? That's none other than Gideon, the son of Joash. And, and what that means is the Israelites are getting ready to open a huge can of whoop upon us. That's what that means. So Gideon hears this. So God has told him over and over, Gideon, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And now God has allowed his enemy, he has spoken to his enemy to tell him he's going to do this. Gideon's now full of confidence, right? I mean, Gideon, you know, is now, and, and so, what, so what is all the, the, the barley loaf coming down? How that, we see barley, barley, you didn't eat barley. Humans didn't eat barley unless they absolutely had nothing else. Animals ate barley. Poor people ate barley. The, the, the Israelites ate wheat, but you only ate barley when you didn't have wheat. And what happened? Well, the Midianites had raided and pillaged all of Israel. They had stolen their livestock. They had stolen their, their, their harvest, their crops, and they stole their wheat. And so all Israel had was barley. And so this dried barley was, dried barley was what you save for food. And this dried barley loaf was symbolic of just dried up, weak, defeated Israel. Now, the Midianites were a Bedouin nomadic people. They were Bedouins. They, they were shepherds, and they, were, you know, they, they, they moved from place to place, and they lived in tents. And I mean, if you'll remember a Bedouin like Jael, when we got to Jael, she was a Bedouin woman. And, man, that's why she could use a, a tent peg and a hammer. And she used what she had for the glory of God. And that's what all God asks of you. He doesn't ask of you to be like Billy Graham. And he doesn't ask of you to be like some major leader or Moses. Or he asks you to be you and use what you have for his glory. And so she was a Bedouin woman. And the, the Midianites were Bedouin nomadic people who lived in tents. And so you got this barley loaf that re represents defeated, dried up, poor, weak Israel that's absolutely coming down and wiping out this Bedouin nomadic people. It's Israel is getting ready to open a can on Midian. That's exactly what the dream was. And so, so now, man, you can imagine how, how Gideon's feeling now after this fourth uh, sign that God has given him, right, and this fourth word. And so, so let's go on and read what happens in verses uh, 16 through 18. It says, and, and, and he divided, Gideon rushes back to camp, and it says, and he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and I, uh, uh, when, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, 
Then blow the trumpet also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, what we see here is Gideon, he goes back to camp just full of confidence now. I mean, I've got 300 people. They've got, I can't count them, but I mean, we're outnumbered a, a whole lot to one. They don't have odds for this. It doesn't make logical sense, right? I mean, uh, it doesn't make sense. I'm scared to death. It's like God telling you, you know, hey, quit your job and move to a country that doesn't even have a Starbucks. That doesn't make sense, right? I, I don't know how I can do that. That doesn't make sense. That's like God telling your kids to move, and you're like, wait a minute, that's my kids, and I'm scared for That's like God telling you to do something. It doesn't make sense. 300 against but God has spoken, and God has promised his presence, and God's word and God's presence transforms. Now God, Gideon has heard. He gets back to camp. He's full of confidence, and he goes, and he, he's got 300 men. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know God is doing this. That's a beautiful place to be. I, I cannot do this. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know God's going to do it. Man, that right there is a place of trust and faith, and that's where you need to live. That's where it's exciting, okay? And so Gideon, he goes back, and he takes his 300 men, and he divides them into three companies, three different groups. And he says, guys, we're getting ready to go. He says, get ready. And he divides them into three groups, and he arms them like the SEAL Team 6. I mean, man, he gives them swords and spears and RPGs and grenades. And, man, they've got night vision, and they've got all this stuff because it's pitch black. Right? No. He divides them into three groups, and he arms them with clay pitchers, torches, and trumpets. I mean, they don't have a sword. They don't have a spear. I mean, the guys are like, hey, a torch. I mean, what are we going to do, blow their eardrums out? What are we going to do with a torch? Beat them in the head with a torch? I mean, what is this all about? Doesn't make sense. It absolutely does not make sense, folks. Following God, when God commands you to do stuff, it just most likely, most typically doesn't make sense. Wait to have sex before our marriage. That don't make sense in our world, right? Give my income. That don't make sense in our world, right? I mean, uh, surrender. Quit my job. That doesn't make sense in our world. Forgive someone. That doesn't make sense in our world. Stay with my wife when, uh, stay with my husband. If he was like, uh, you know, if he cheated on me, I mean, you know, because all your friends that don't know Christ say, get out, right? And it's like, oh, wait a minute, God's forgiving you. I mean, that doesn't make sense in our world, right? I mean, the things of God doesn't make sense in our world. That's why the scripture says that only a man of the spirit can understand things of the spirit. Only a woman of the spirit can understand things of the spirit. It doesn't make sense. So Gideon, he arms them with a torch, with a clay pitcher, and with a trumpet. And he says, do as I do. We're going to get to the outskirts of the town. And you would think I've got 300 people. Now, if I'm the general and I'm going on human logic, I, I'm not been to war school or anything. But here's what I'm thinking I would do. I'm thinking if I were going to go into battle with 300 men against so many soldiers I couldn't count them, I'm at least going to go in stealth mode. I'm going to army crawl. Guys, we're going to get down. We're going to put the, you know, we're going to put the, the, the ghillie suits on. We're going to put the weeds in our hair and everything. And, man, we're going to army crawl. And we're going to go in. It's dark. We've got to be quiet. Do not blow this trumpet. Do not blow it. Do not light that torch. You're going to be quiet. We can't be seen because at least we can sneak up, man, and maybe we can get three or 400 of them before they just rout us and kill us. We're going to be absolutely stealth. Is that what Gideon did? Man, let, let, let's see. Let's look at verses 19 uh, through 22. In 19 through 22 it says, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. That's very important. At the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in the, their hands, 
Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand and the torches in their right hands, their, the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerara, as far as the border of Abel Maholah uh, by, by Tabath. And, 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 and let me stop there. And, and so, so rather than stealth, Gideon goes opposite. I mean, rather than stealth, Gideon, they, rather than an army crawling in and being quiet, not blowing trumpets, they surround the camp. You got a hundred here, a hundred here, a hundred here, and man, they're surrounding the Midianite camp, and it's large because of all the numerous people. So they're surrounding the camp, and rather than going in, you know, like quiet and sneaking in from all angles and just like, okay, guys, here we go. I mean, man, they started, they come in louder in life. They started, Gideon said, when I blow my horn, you blow your horn and smash your jar, light your torch, and you say, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. And folks, they didn't even have swords, okay? Now think about that. So what is that? all about? Why would you not go in stealth? Well, because here, here's what was happening. In that day, uh, uh, the, 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 the trumpet, let's talk about the trumpet. Uh, we're, we're talking about a shofar, all right? We're not talking about the thing, you know, with uh, the, the, the buttons that you push and it, you know, I mean, we're talking about a shofar, you know, woo, I mean, the, the shofar. I don't know if that's how it sounded, but imagine it was. So probably a lot better, but you know, a shofar was very significant, as we said, to Israel. I mean, if you remember, uh, you know, uh, if we go back, Ehud blew the, sh blew the shofar, and he rallied the people. And the shofar, it was a great symbol of God preserving his covenant chosen people because uh, it was like, went all the way back to Abraham when he was sacrificing Isaac. And, uh, you know, he put him on the altar in obedience, and he was about to sacrifice him. And God said, stop, don't lay a hand. And he looked up, and there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And so the ram's horn, he sacrificed the ram. The ram's horn became a symbol of God's uh, preser preserving his covenant chosen people and they began to blow the shofar in significant times like in the year of Jubilee every 49th or 50th year Jubilee the land went back to the original owner no matter what had happened and it, it went back to the original owner because it was saying God was saying look you really don't own the land I do it's not your land it's mine so it went back to the original owner to remind them and so now as Gideon is taking the land back as God is taking the land back it's like blowing the shofar it's like the land's going back, but also it had some military significance. When you blew the trumpet or the shofar, only, it was generally one trumpet or one shofar per battalion because that's how they communicated. You can remember back, you know, during the cavalry days and they, they communicated. They didn't have, you know, comms and they wasn't, you know, in their ears and they wasn't communicating by radio. They communicated through trumpets and, I mean, the cavalry charge and all that kind of stuff. So you would have one horn, one, one, one trumpet per battalion of people and torch per battalion of people so that the communication was clear and, and consistent, right? You didn't want everybody having uh, trumpets because everybody blowing the horns and be sounding different horns and what are we doing? One per battalion. So now think about it. You've got all these 300 people and they all have trumpets in their hands. And so when, when, when Gideon started blowing his trumpet, he started blow, sounding the trumpet. 300 trumpets are heard. So all of a sudden, bam, you're hearing 300 trumpets. Man, that's signifying 
tens of thousands of violent Jews in their mind. So they're hearing these trumpets and they're thinking, 300, man, they've got thousands and thousands of men. And now they start busting these, uh, these pitchers. And when they bust the clay pitchers, man, it sounds like men rattling their swords. I mean, all these crashing pitchers, like men rattling their swords and they're saying, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. And they don't even have a sword. So the, the, the man, they hear the trumpets, all of a sudden they hear the smashing and they see the torches and they're like, man, we are surrounded by a vast army. We are about to get kicked. Okay? And it says that this happened in the beginning of the middle watch. Now that's very significant because the Midianite army, vast it was, separated into three watches, three groups Right, you would always have a group that was on watch. You didn't want to sleep without having somebody watch over you when you slept. So you have a group on watch. Two thirds of the people are asleep most of the time, and one third is awake on watch. This was at the beginning of the middle watch, which is important. The timing of God's always important. So you got a group coming in from their watch. Right, they're tired. They're sleepy. Middle of the night, tired. Middle of the night, sleepy. Right. I mean, they're like yawn and they're coming in. You got a group getting up getting ready to go on watch. Man, they're wiping asleep from their eyes. Man, they're trying to get out. It, it, it was this time when uh, all the military people said, man, this was the most confusing time, right? And so at the, at the beginning of the middle watch, Gideon, in God's perfect timing, blows the horn, 300 horns blowing, 300 trumpets blowing. I mean, smashing of jars, rattling of the saber. They hear Israel shouting, a sword for the Lord. They're thinking, we're outnumbered. There's people everywhere. They're confused because they're sleepy. They're confused because they're sleepy. They hear this. All of a sudden, they think the group coming in is the enemy. They think the group running out. Man, they just began attacking each other. And Gideon sat back going, <laughs> I mean, he's not even raising a hand. They rout. The, the, the Midianites are routed, and what's left, man, they tuck tail and run. Now, they're the feathers in their tail. They're the ones running. And Gideon and the army sitting back, they have destroyed Midian with, guess what, not one Israelite casualty and not one shot fired. Man, they didn't even shoot a, they didn't even fire a shot. They didn't even fire a shot. Now, let me ask you this. Is that story incredible? Now, let me ask you this. Do you think? that Gideon or anyone in that army went back and said, look at what we did, boys. Do you think they did that? No. They couldn't say that. The only thing they could do was go back and say, guys, look at what our God did. They couldn't go back and say, oh, aren't we great warriors? All they could do back go back and say, our God is a mighty warrior. A mighty warrior is our God. You know, I mean, that's all he could sing. That's all he could say. God is great. Look at what God did, folks. I mean, man, this is such, I mean, an amazing story. I mean, God doesn't need victors. Listen to what you've got to understand. You think, man, I'm not that. God doesn't need victors. Here's what he needs, vessels. Vessels. Putting your yes on the table and being available is how you can live a courageous life and how you can be used by God and see God do great things. Let me let you, let me, let me let you in on a secret. It's not really a secret. Cowards and careless never experience the victories of God. The coward and the careless never experience the victories of God, folks. And that's not where you want to be. Look at verse 23. In verse 23 it says, and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. What happened? 
I mean, Gideon was just faithful. He was a fool. Everybody in town called him a fool from human logic, wasn't it? I mean, he was a fool from here. You are absolutely, you, don't you know those people went back to mama, all the cowards that ran out, 22,000 kicked rocks on the way to the house. They went home, told mama, oh, they're going to do this. And everybody's like, Gideon's fool. Then 9,700, they're like, he's taken with 300. Oh, man, it's going to be like, oh, it's, I can't even watch. I, I don't even want to hear. Gideon is a fool. All those 300, they are fools. I promise you, when you follow Christ, people are going to think you're a fool. Promise you. People's going to think you're a fool. People's going to think you are crazy. That guy is literally crazy. I mean, man, he, why would he stay with his wife? Why would she stay with her husband? Why would they do that? Why would they give that money? Why would they quit their job? Why would they go on the mission? Why would they? Why, I mean, why? It's like, that's what people are always going to ask about people who are committed to following God. You're crazy. And so, so here's what happened. They thought they're crazy, and then all of a sudden when they step out, Gideon says, man, that's what God said. That's what we're going to do. I mean, I'm afraid. Man, I don't know how it's going to turn out. doesn't make any sense, but I know i got a word from God. That's all I need. I'm going to do what God says, and if I don't, I'm a fool. Listen, I'm telling you that if Gideon would not have went into that battle because he had a word from God, he was a fool for not going. Okay? And so Gideon went because he had a word for God, for, from God. He went into that battle. And all those people who thought he were fools, when they saw what God did, they didn't say, oh, Gideon is amazing right here. God's awesome. And then what happened? When they saw a man lead and 300 other leaders lead, well, then they stepped up and said, man, we want to follow. We want to follow that. And then everybody else got started getting involved. That's what happens when people lead. When you step up, you don't know who you're inspiring. When you step up, you don't know how many people are going to jump in and say, whoa, that's crazy. And then they see it happening and they're like, man, alive. I, that's gutsy. That, he's experiencing life. I'm coasting. Man, I'm, I'm Groundhog Day in here, right? Following God's not Groundhog Day, okay? I promise you, you don't know what's coming. And when you lead, it inspires people and people follow. And when you lead by simply taking a stand, you lead by walking away from a conversation sometimes. Right? You lead by saying, no, I'm not living that way. No, I'm not going to be a part of that. You know, you don't have to lead by rallying the troops and preaching on a stage. You lead by living a life of, of holiness, a, a living a life that, that is committed. Right? Holiness doesn't mean perfect. It means a life dedicated to the Lord, a life committed. That's how, that's how you lead. And so what do we learn from this, man? Here, here's some great things. First off, here's what I want you to understand. Salvation is not for the strong. Okay? Some of you here today, you're not a Christian. You hear this story, it's like, what? Salvation is not for the strong. Matter of fact, the strong cannot be saved. Let me explain that. If you think that you're here and you're not a Christian and you think that you can do anything to get salvation, man, you can, you can be good enough in your power. You can earn it by memorizing. You can memorize the entire New Testament and that's not going to give you salvation. Okay? You, you, there's nothing in your power. All your works are like filthy rags, Paul says. Anything you can do is junk to God in, in, in your own effort, in your attempt to please him. It's like it stinks to God. God looks down and says, that's keeping you from me. Strong people can't be saved, folks. Who is it? Weak people. People that say, I'm doomed. I'm helpless. I can do literally nothing. That's the people God can save. They throw themselves at Christ because they know I can't, but he can and he will. So I want you to know if you're not a Christian, it's only when you surrender to him and when you say, I can't, I can do nothing, I'm doomed, I can't, 
but he can and he will. That is when you can be saved. Salvation is not for the strong, it's for the weak. And let me tell you, that's how you're used for God. Being used by God, for those of you who are believers, is not for the strong. It's for the weak. It's for those who say, I can't, but God can and God will. God doesn't need a lot of people. God just needs a certain kind of people, folks. He needs committed people, not perfect people. None of you are perfect. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. He doesn't need, he can, there's no such thing as perfect people since Jesus uh, went back to heaven 2,000 years. Only perfect person ever lived. Adam had a few days of good, good, few good days, right? Adam and Eve, no perfect people, committed people, committed people, right? And listen, here's what happened. A lot of people rallied, many, 32,000 people rallied, but they didn't show up. 99% of them didn't show up. That reminds me a whole lot of a story Jesus told in Matthew 13 about some parable. A parable is called the parable of the soils, right? And he talks about a farmer planting. And this, I think, in the New Testament and for us, the church world, this is what Gideon's experiencing here. You know, because many people showed, rallied, but not, not 99% didn't show up. And Jesus said, let me, let me equate it like this. Jesus said in the New Testament, he talks about a farmer because he's talking to an agrarian society. He said a farmer was planting seed and, and he threw out some seed. And you know what it did? It fell on ground that didn't, didn't take. It was just hard ground and nothing penetrated it. And that's, that's, that's referring to the heart that is hard to Christ. And you can preach the gospel. You throw out the seed of the gospel and it's like, bang, it just bounces off. Now, that's a, that's, that's a hard heart to Christ, right? Happens all the time. Happens every Sunday. Happens every time the gospel is preached, to be honest. Then he says there's a different soil. The, the, third, the second soil is a soil that, man, the seed goes in and immediately it springs up. The gospel's preached and immediately somebody says, oh, I want that. I want Jesus. Heaven, hell, give me heaven, right? I mean, I get baptized, I pray a prayer, and then it says that, but the roots couldn't go in deep because it was rocky soil and the sun, the heat comes out and it just withers. Man, that's what we see a lot with Gideon. I mean, Gideon, it's like he's got, he's got 90, uh, uh, he's got 32,000 and he says, if you're scared, if you've got feathers detailed, just go into the house, 22,000 jetted. Why? Because, man, they had no depth. They had no depth because they were scared. The heat turned up and they withered. And today in the church, you got a lot of people who, I want Jesus. Man, I'll get baptized. I'll pray. And, man, they come out the gate, and they're here. And a month later, a year later, it's like, I'll never see them again. Right? It's in every church, America, every church, right? The third soil is soil where that the seed fell and the seed went into the ground. And, man, the plant started growing up. And then it was seeming the roots were getting deeper. And all of a sudden, man, the thorns came up and just choked it out. And what's it Jesus talking about there? He's talking about, man, the people who said, Yes, I want Jesus. Man, I, I, I want Jesus. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. Yes, amen. Let me pray the prayer. Let me get baptized. Man, let me join church. I, I want Jesus. But then, man, they start living. They go down. And they go, oh, man, I, I really want to make a lot of money. And I really want to do this. The cares of the world, the thorns come in and begin to choke. Money, possessions, fame, position. I don't know, uh, desires. All this stuff comes in and chokes them out. It's like, uh, man, they, they're, they're left on the wayside. It's people who live their life carelessly. It's people who live their life carelessly, and, and, and they bench themselves. It's those who elevate the desires over the mission. And when you elevate your desires over the mission, God said they can't fight, right? 
But God will do amazing things over those who are willing to die to themselves. That's why he said there's a fourth soil, which is uh, the minority of people, by the way. There's a fourth soil, and the fourth soil, the seed fell, and this plant sprang up, and guess what happened? It says they produced fruit a hundredfold and sixtyfold and thirtyfold. And folks, here's what I want you to understand. The, the seed that fell among the good soil and those who come up were committed, there was fruit bearing, and there was proof in the fruit that, that they had committed to Christ. Okay? There was proof in the fruit. Jesus told the parable much like this, Right? I mean, those who elevate their desires over the mission, folks, couldn't fight. Those who were scared, those who were more concerned about their reputation, those who were more concerned about their life, couldn't fight. Jesus said, man, the mission needs to be most important. But those who elevated their desires over the mission couldn't fight. But God will do amazing things through those who are willing to die to themselves and take up the cross. Paul was talking like this. Paul was talking in, into the Philippians, in, in Philippians chapter 1. And he said, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourselves worthy of your calling. He's speaking to a church. He's speaking to Christians. He could have wrote that to Life Point Church today in Middle Tennessee. Conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel if you're a Christian. I don't know about you, but if you're having your quiet time and you get to that phrase, I just think you should just stop there and meditate for a long time. Don't even read don't even read anything else. Read that context and say, God, am I, is my, am I conducting my life worthy? Well, let me tell you what, not, what is not worthy. Getting drunk. Drunkenness is not worthy. Okay, that, that sort of takes the wind out of your gospel sails. Slander. Slander is not worthy. Gossip is not worthy. You know, vulgar. Uh, curse. When, when you, you go to the water cooler, man, everything that comes out of your mouth is, is, is vulgar and cursing. And, man, you think, oh, let me tell you about Jesus. Huh? I mean, man, that, that, that benches you, right? I, I mean, addictions of all kinds. There's all kinds of things that's not worthy, but let me tell you what we don't think about all the time. Let me tell you what's not worthy. What's not worthy of the gospel is not being committed to your church. What's not worthy of the gospel is not being committed to your community. What's not worthy of the gospel is for a Christian to remain silent. That's not worthy of the gospel. If he called you, he, he, he saved you to send you. He redeemed you to represent that's not worthy of the gospel, right? We're not to put our, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? We're not to, I'm not going to put it under a lamp, right? They took, the, they took the, the pitcher off the torch and burst it, and the torch was shining bright as they blew the trumpet. Folks, we got to blow the trumpet of the gospel and let our life shine. I mean, we should, people should be looking at your life and saying, listen, your marriage, it's not perfect, and you should never act like it is, Right? But people should look at your marriage and say, it's not perfect, but it's different. People should look at your parenting and say, your kids are crazy like everybody else's. But you parent differently, right? I mean, the way you treat your wife, the things you say about your wife are not what the other people at work say about their wife or what they say about their kids. I've seen you walk away when conversations are vulgar or when there's slander or there's gossip going on. I've seen you walk away. People notice those things. you got to let your light shine. A man or a woman who does not speak up and let their light shine, it's not worthy of the gospel. It's not worthy. Conduct your lives worthy. Are you committed? Are you committed? Listen, and here's the last thing I would say. Before you use a sword on the enemy, you've got to use the sword on yourself. What I mean by that is you've got to die to yourself. That's why Jesus said uh, we have to die to ourselves. You have to give up your will to the Bible. 
to the will of God, which is found in his word. Give up your will to the will of the Bible. Give up your rights to the rights of the Bible. Paul found himself uh, because he died to himself and went, guess what? Paul died to himself. He, he used the sword on himself, died to himself. He went on mission with God. He ended up in prison. He ended up beaten. He didn't complain. He ended up in prison wrong. What did he do? I just shared the gospel with the jailer. Right? I mean, that's commitment. Listen, what if 300 people did this today? Imagine what would happen in our community, in our world, if, I mean, man, not, uh, not a lot, just, man, a few hundred said, I'm committed. I'm committed. I, and, and here's the thing, man, some are cowards, and here's what I want you to know. If you're a coward, God can give you courage. God can give you courage. Gideon was a coward. Gideon was, Moses was a coward. I can't do it, God. All the great heroes. So if you're a coward, that's not to say, oh, yeah. man, you should identify with everybody God used. God can give you courage. And that's not the absence of fear. That's, man, acting in spite of fear. So if you're a coward, it's not like, oh, man, I'm a coward. I'm doomed. God can never use me. No, it's just like everybody else in the Bible God used. They just said all of a sudden, God, I need you. I'm doomed if you don't show up. God can give you courage. If you're careless, man, that's what makes our God so different than every other God. He is a God of such grace. And it's never too late to turn around and say, God, I'm sorry. God, help me to be holy as you are holy. That's the great thing about our God. Right? Commitment doesn't mean perfection. Commitment doesn't mean, man, you're up on the spiritual ladder a whole lot. Commitment just means I'm committed and I'm dedicated to the Lord. I'm not going to be perfect, but I want to be holy. I want to be set aside. I want to be set aside and live a life dedicated to him. And you see what God does. See what God does when you do that. People will begin to follow your example. You will not even know the number of people you impact when you live that life. One day when you get to heaven, maybe God will show you of all the people that said, man, if he's going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to step out if he stepped out, if she stepped out. Are you a coward? Are you careless? Are you committed? If you're a coward, God will give you courage. And if you're careless, God can make you holy so that you can be committed. Right now, if you don't know Christ, we'd love to invite you to come back and, 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 and we can help you to understand what it means to give your life to him. Man, this was a challenging message. And I believe for the church to respond, we all have to, man, use the sword on ourselves and die to ourselves. And, and here's why we can preach a message like this, to live a life like that, right? Because Jesus Christ went to the mat for you. He went to war. He went behind enemy lines and he went to war for your soul. And he won, by the way. By himself. He didn't take, you know, an army. As a matter of fact, he could have had an army of angels to massacre people with a blink. But he went to war by himself to the point of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went to war by himself. That's commitment. To sacrifice his life so that those who surrender to him can have life. So we're going to remember that right now in what we call communion, the Lord's, the Lord's Supper. So Jesus, he instituted this so we would always remember. God said the price for sin was death, and Adam and Eve died physically by God's grace, not immediately, but they did die physically because they sinned, but they also died spiritually, separated from God. And God said the price is death. That's why Jesus died. He died your death to pay the price for 
your soul if you surrender to him. That's why everybody's not going to heaven. God sent his son to die. And for everybody to just get in would, would trample on the death of Jesus Christ. But for those who surrender. And so Jesus went to war. He went behind the enemy lines. He, man, he was committed. You know what? He, he was a little bit afraid. He's God. But don't you remember in the garden? Father, if this cup, take it from me. I don't want to do this. But thank God he had the courage. And the Father gave him the courage to be obedient. Jesus was never careless. Never committed one sin. That's what made his commitment apply to our life. And so we want to remember that. And so here's what we're going to do. Our, our ushers are going to come forward and they're going to hand out uh, two little cups. And if you're a Christian, this is for you. Because it's about his death and resurrection. And so it's for Christians. If you're a member of our church or not, if you're a Christian, you can partake with us, okay? Because this is about his death and resurrection. That's why it's for Christians. And so you're going to take, there's two cups. Take them both, a, one, a, piece, a little piece of bread and one and juice. We use juice because we know some folks have, have, have uh, you know, alcohol problems. And so we don't want to cause anybody that. So it's juice, you're safe, okay? And so, so it's, it's juice and it's, it's, it's a, a little piece of bread. Hold that. And Travis is going to sing as we pass it out, and then we'll come back and take it together. But when you're doing that, here's what Paul told the Corinthian church. Paul told the Corinthian church, because they were doing this, but they were off the rails carelessly living life. Man, they were, they were sexually off the rails. They were in every way. They would come together, and throughout the history of the church, they've used wine, okay? And so, so they were using wine, and they were doing communion. They were getting drunk on the Lord's Supper wine. They were gluttons on the Lord's Supper. And Paul said, what are you doing? Right? And he said, before you do this, you need to examine yourself. And so we want to give you the time to say, God, have I slandered anybody? Have I gossiped about anybody? God, forgive me for being fearful and not doing that because I was fearful. Forgive me for, for Lord, living my life carelessly in whatever way. We want to give you the opportunity to contemplate your life. And then uh, uh, we, we'll come back and together we'll take communion together to remember his death and his resurrection. Okay, and remember, remember his sacrifice that makes it possible for us to live. Let, let me pray and Travis will come and the band and, and we will uh, pass out and you contemplate and pray and we'll come back and do it together. God, we love you. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your call, God. Thank you that when I have been coward in my life, you have given me courage and forgive me for the times when, Lord, I didn't act. I remained a coward, God. Uh, I know that there's times when I've lived my life foolishly, God. I've lived my life carelessly. And I pray you would forgive me of that and help me to be holy. And I know that doesn't mean perfect, Lord. Help me to be holy. God, help me to be committed. And I pray that over this church. And God, the reason I pray that is because we have a Savior who went to the mat, laying his arms out on the cross, dying so that I might have life. God, that makes no sense in the world. That's why you chose the unlikely judges. No one would think Ehud, Ehud, a one-armed man is going to do anything. Gideon, a coward. And you tell us that Jesus came and, Lord, he didn't look like a king. He didn't look like anyone of, that would make people stand up and go, wow. And you, yet, you broke him on the cross. You broke his body and spilled his blood so that we may live. Help us right now to contemplate and examine our lives as we take your communion, celebrating, remembering your death and resurrection.